The Collective Whisper Podcast with Simon King. Hello, everybody. Welcome to today's show. Today, I'd like to welcome Kieran O'Reilly. Kieran O'Reilly is an actor, musician, and producer. Kieran is a real-life police detective who worked for many years as an undercover drugs operative. He is known for his role in the Emmy Award-winning television series Vikings as White Hair. Kieran arrived onto the acting scene in 2013 with a critically acclaimed performance in Ireland's television crime drama Love Hate as Detective Garlett Kieran Madden and in 2016 was nominated for the Discovery Award at the Dublin International Film Festival. He is also the singer-songwriter of the Irish alternative band Hail the Ghost. Okay, welcome to the show, Kieran. How are you? I'm good. Thanks very much, and thanks for having me. No problem. You're you're in Dublin there. What's the weather like? Uh, it's surprisingly good, but like every day, you're afraid to commit because it could be lashing in an hour, you know? But it's good. Sunshine. Yeah, very nice. I like your I like your office space behind you. There's some nice photos and music collection. It's great to see that. You know, uh, th- th- this took me about ten years to 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 get uh, because it was a bedroom, it was a dumping room, it was a playroom. So I fought very hard to get this room. So uh, I kind of have to make use of it now and justify it. You know, brilliant. Uh, do you find yourself now, obviously, with COVID? Um, do you find yourself working a lot from the office? Yeah, I kind of um, I kind of use this room for kind of writing music, and um, I've kind of written films and stuff. And I, I'm actually at the moment I, I've started a novel. I don't know why, but I have. So I'm kind of I'm in here a bit working away. Yeah, brilliant. That's really good. I mean, it, it's good you have your finger in all these different pies. It's really interesting. It's not deliberate. It's just kind of these things kind of nearly present themselves. And for some reason, I'm like a kind of a, I just I, I I kind of chase the bone. You know, I I can't not do it if you know what I mean. So some things I've, I just have a compulsion to kind of um, immerse myself in or discover or explore. But um, like to be honest with you, when I I I said I, I done an interview with Brendan O'Connor one time on on uh, the Saturday Night Show, and I and I and I said in the interview, you know, I, I've started writing this novel, which I had at the time. But the reason why I committed to say that on television was because I was trying to force myself and be accountable to myself in my own words to actually go through with it and finish it. But um, that that kind of other other projects got in the way. But I'm back at it now, so I've I'm. Uh, That's good. I mean, I'm I'm kind of like that myself. I like to. I never like to limit myself, you know, if there's something and every few years, you know, new things can pop up in your life or new challenges. And you can say to yourself, wow, I think I could do that or I have an interest. And it's kind of like that inner voice that's pushing you saying, why not try this? Or you've had an interest in this for a while. So I think it's great when people embrace new challenges and and go for it, you know? Yeah, that's exactly it. Like where you have this little thing saying, I think I could do it and, and and I think I'd enjoy it. Those things, real simply, you know. Yeah. So, so tell us, Kieran. At the moment, for you, you know, like obviously, a lot of things came to a halt for you as well with COVID. Are you back doing stuff now, or you know, have you stuff in the pipeline? Yeah. Um. Uh. Music. We are trying to organise kind of our our first rehearsal back actually with Head of the Ghost. Um. So we're we're um we're trying to find Ian Core and pull him out of his house. But uh, we're just trying to find it. <laughs> Ian's hiding under a bed, and uh, we're we're trying to organise that. And actually, maybe next week we'll all be standing in a room together, which is which is great. And we're gonna we're gonna start working kind of 
we're not going to hang around. We're going to start working on the third album straight away, you know. Brilliant. That's great. And are, have you been filming the last few months or were, are a lot of productions still like stopped? I think I think they're coming back. I th- during COVID, I, I did one short film actually. Um, I think I think that's. I just got a call off the production yesterday, and I think the the PR for that's going to start. It was um, it was a a film that I suppose, I'm only assisting. I'm only going to aid and supporting um a girl, a young girl actually from Tala. Uh, she's a girl with Down syndrome, and uh, she's fantastic, and um, uh, so I did a short film with her, and I, I think that's going to be. I think that's going to be publicised in the next couple of days. Um, uh, I'm not sure whether they have a release date yet or not, but um, it, it's called "Wanna Hang Out." That, that was that was one film I did, and um, and, and I'm actually going to kind of work on a television show uh, ne- ne- next week. Um, I'll go up the north for that. So. Brilliant! That's great. It's great that you're busy. Yeah, I should, I should probably say what it is. It's a, uh, if you like, yeah, come on. Well, I don't know. I mean, uh, uh, it, it's a television show called Dag Leash. Uh, so so yeah, I think I think it's set in the nineteen seventies. It's a kind of a crime drama or something. So so I mean, if it transpires to be rubbish, you can delete that bit of the interview. <laughs> well, this will be out maybe before the TV shows out. So don't worry. Yeah, it's good. So, so, sometimes um, sometimes I don't. You know, if someone says I'm filming something and I'm like, oh, what's it called? And they're like, I can't say yet. So I kind of let them bring oh, yeah, it up themselves. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, actually, I, I don't even know whether I'm allowed to say it or not. So, well, it's, it's out now. So, oh, whatever, it's fine. <laughs> don't worry, we'll we'll do a big bleep over. <laughs> That's fine, sure, probably. For sure, for sure. So let's go back a little. Um, so your your family. I see you were a twin. Is it was there only you and was it a boy or girl in the family, or how many children were there? Um, there was I had a twin brother, and I have. Oh, sorry, I have a twin brother. Um, and uh, I have a younger sister and a younger brother. Um, so, uh, yeah, the tw- we, us being the twins, we, we, we were the eldest. So, so, uh, are you, are you identical twins or what's the story with the twin situation? It can be different. No, no we're 100% not, but I actually would have loved to have been, I think in ways, depending on, you know, how handsome or ugly we were, you know, I, I, I would have liked to, to experience that, but no, we're, we're very different. We're very, we're actually bipolar opposites. Like my twin brother has, um, He's, he he probably wouldn't like to admit this, but he's he's balding, and he's dark hair, and he's full of tattoos, and yeah, he's he's very different interests. Like I actually, I I came to, he came to one of my shows one time in Wheelands, you know, and um, he he came and after the show he said, yeah, maybe one or two songs were all right, but wouldn't be my thing altogether, you know. That was that was his feedback. Yeah, it's funny. I heard this girl saying once to a guy. Um, she said to him, "You're you're quite good looking," and he said, "Yeah, and I have a twin." And he said, "You should see him." And about twenty minutes later, the twin walked up to the bar, and he was identical. He was not <laughs> he was an identical twin, and we were we couldn't stop laughing, you know. <laughs> no, I, I I I think I think that the twins always they, they have a very intimate knowledge of each other, you know, and they there is a probably a thing where I think they have an innate understanding of you know how things are apportioned. You know, I think so. Anyway, like, yeah, we both know what we got. No, and actually, just staying on that twin thing for a minute, were were you very close growing up? Like, do you feel that there's a different bond when you have a twin? Yeah, I do. I do think there's a different bond. I mean, to be honest with you, if 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 my brother walked into the room, I'd know what mood he was in, and I'd know there was if there was something 
wrong or I'd know straight away without any words in a matter of seconds like you know I'd know just you kind of read each other very quickly but also like the, the closer you are to someone I suppose it's probably not a good thing but you kind of do take them for granted so there's like um it's there there are, there are no boundaries in ways and uh but yeah I, I think we, we like there are times when we might not see each other for a long time and then we'll we'll see each other and like during the COVID there um we, we, we walked around just around Trinity College at night and up Dawson Street on our own, just the two of us. The streets were totally empty. And it, it, it was one of the nicest times I've had with him. You know, we were just talking, shooting the breeze, him about his world, me about mine. And, um, you know, the only commonality was the coffee in each hand. And, and it was just, it was nice, you know. Yeah, that's great. That's great. I think I think that's the one plus from COVID is that families became closer and, you know, they, they rediscovered things in each other again. Definitely. I think I think that to understand and appreciate the family unit is a huge, you know, conceptually it's something that probably has escaped us, you know, it really has. I mean, I mean, there's there, fundamentally we're all about family and, and love. And, and, and you know what? There's not much outside that. I know we think there are. But, but you know we think there is but there's not really like it's it's that's the crux of of, of our existence is is uh, who you love and, and 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 how you exist you know i think anyway i might be wrong no you're right you're right because i think now in this last year or so that's shown that a lot because you know when all you have is the four walls and the roof around you and you know it's it's um like there's you know you have restrictions you can't go anywhere you either have to get on with the people you love and that's around you or else kill each other. And, you know, that's killing each other is not an option. So the thing is, I think what happens for a lot of families, they've found a way to love each other again in, in, in different ways. But they've rediscovered who they are and what their brothers and sisters are doing and fat fathers and mothers, you know. So as you said, that that bond of love has, I think, has really grown. The world might seem kind of fucked outside, but I think in the family unit, it's become stronger. Yeah, I do think so. And I think our perception of what that is or what it was for us has changed. And also, I think that we're, we're, we've changed. We've changed and we've been forced into it. We've been changed to, to um, accept or to maybe look at the things we have differently. And maybe to appreciate them, I think, you know, because there's value in it, you know. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Yeah. This is a very deep podcast. I love this. I need to lie down. <laughs> Yeah, that's good. We'll, we'll we'll have you relax now, a nice cup of coffee and no Prozac or anything, though. Don't worry, we won't go that far. Uh, so tell us about your, your early life in Dublin. Like, what was it like growing up there? Because I see that you went to Killian's National School in Tala. So were you, would you consider yourself like a born and bred Tala man? Or, you know, were you, were you in, in this Tala scene when you were growing up in the 80s and 90s? I mean, Tala's a very it's a kind of a special place and it was always a bit of a mad place as well um but yeah i would consider myself a taliban but we were nomads we were always on the move to some degree um but i spent a lot of i, I spent my you know our, my home life in various parts of Tala, and we kind of settled in, in kingswood heights um uh, but I, I and i would consider myself i was sneaking up to brookfield and all these crazy places uh when i was a teenager and and, and you know um, but I spent a lot of my time in town. I, I was I, I kind of see myself maybe as more of a city, a city person because from the age of eleven I was going to school in Sing Street in town, and and a lot of my friends were from 
the flats like uh, Ivy Trust, Charlemagne Street, Mercer Street, Dolphins Barn, um, all those places like uh, Bishop Street flats, and uh, and and yeah, so that, that they were my informative years were more it was more city based, you know. Yeah, and you know, obviously, growing up in in the you know you're 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 born seventy nine, I think. So growing up in the in the late eighties and nineties, and as a teenager, was it hard to stay out of trouble? Because I'm sure you had obviously good elements and bad elements, but you know, it depends which crowd you fell in with, no? Totally, yeah, totally. I mean, <clears throat> totally. I think we we had a very strict upbringing, and um, th- there wasn't much maneuverability to to be renegades you know in, in some respect i mean we all got into we all got into uh trouble we all took chances and a lot of it was experimental stuff and we all did crazy things and, and some of that stuff got back and some of it didn't and i suppose nowadays especially i think you're on the roulette wheel with choices you make and whether you kind of make it through them uh, or not like and a lot of the times like say um yeah, we did. We like friends of ours. You know, you grew up in Dublin. You know, everyone knows a person that fell into drugs. Everyone knows a person that has done some serious crime. Everyone knows a person that that has done extremely well academically. You know, so 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 like you were never too far away from anything. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Yeah, moved across to Kings of Heights when we were ten, and that was like the Fox Rock part of Tala. It was like. It was swanky. I mean, uh, I, I don't know how we actually, because they were private houses, so I don't know how we afforded that. I don't know how we got across there. But um, our, our lives all changed then, you know, in the sense that uh, we were we were kind of privileged nearly then, you know. And um, uh, we grew up in a lovely area. And it wasn't without its, its trouble either, you know. But um, Tallow was a very, very, I think, healthy place to grow up in some respects. We were lucky to be living in Kingswood. Uh, we went to St. Killian's School there. I had a good selection of friends. Um, <clears throat> uh, I spent a lot of time with, with, with a man called Peter Fitzpatrick, who actually ran for general election in 2016, but he's, he, he was my best friend since the age of nine. And we just spent our time walking, like walking up and down to the square, going to the cinema, just hanging around. There was a couple of heads that we used to play football with. Um, David Walsh from the band Stand and then Empire Circus and Ears Have Walls. He lived directly across the road from me. And and that band, essentially Neil Urell and Carl Dowling and Alan Doyle, they were all scattered around the place. So like there was there was music, musicians around the place. They were probably my first uh they were my first um exposure to a band. I remember when we were ten or eleven, they were a year or two older than us. They asked us, Would we help me and my brother, would we help bring their drums? because uh, Carl Dale had never done that for himself. And that's a joke. But anyway, <laughs> I'm going to joke. Would we bring the drums down to the community centre? And of course, geez, we, this was like, these were like superstars to us. Like, you know, so we, me and my brother did, you know. And and then when we, we helped them kind of put them on the stage, they, they set up and they said, we'll play two or three songs for you. So me and my brother sat there and they played two or three songs and we were gobsmacked. It was like we were in awe of all these people. And, and, and then they said, right, you know, we played the two or three songs, get out. You know, so we had to go out. And, you guys kind of got the sound check. Yeah, 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 yeah. We did. We definitely we got a charitable kind of uh, uh, insight into 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 their into their songs. They they were telling you it was a private concert, but it was really a sound check. So whether you were there or not, <laughs> and, and they used to play in the local pub, the Clock Tower. You know, and they, they were they were heroes. You know, around it, and 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 actually, I kind of grew up kind of in their shadows. And David Walsh's father, Jimmy Jimmy Walsh. 
uh, a legend of a man. He, he used to take me as a young fella to their gigs and used to play in different pubs and bars and wherever else. And, and I kind of went in with Jimmy and I fell in love with the band and fell in love with them. And, 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 and actually, we're still very good friends. They went to live in New York for six or seven years and, and I was always going over. I was used to I used to get flown out to, to fight the NYPD. So I'd get a free flight. I'd land, have a fight with an NYPD man and then I'd go drinking. Uh, typical Irish. Usually, it's the other way around. You go drinking and then <laughs> yeah, have a fight with yeah. the NYPD. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> this time around, they'd be bringing you. You know, we'd all be drinking and then they drop you off. You know. Wow, yeah, uh, that's crazy. But, uh, so, so I just turn up in New York and um, yeah. Well, ju- just uh, for the listeners now, sorry, yeah. because because they they're probably thinking, why was he fighting the NYPD? So Kieran used to be a boxer, so he was boxing. Yeah, I was boxing. I was boxing since the age of sixteen. Sorry, I should should qualify that. But um, so so basically, when 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 I when I joined the job, like um, you know, I was afforded the opportunity to, to fight, you know, on, on on the on the boxing team, and little did I know at the time that that what that entailed was it was slightly less professional, uh, you know, regime that that other kind of high performance things would have been. It was like you fly out, like you could be like literally dragging yourself to the hotel with jet lag after having a 14 hour delay or something, you'd be fighting that night. And like, you're, you know, uh, and, and, and literally I remember the first time we fought was in 2000 in a place called the armory in, in Manhattan. And the place was full, a couple of thousand people there. And uh, I was fighting against a fellow called Gerard Suden, who, who was an M, uh, a fire department, uh, FDMY man. And he was actually subsequently a hero of the nine 11 disaster. He was, pulling people out of the twin towers and i think it badly affected him but he, he was he was an absolute gentleman so i fought him in, in uh 21 years ago actually and um and literally as i was getting out of the ring like i was handed two points and told we don't want to see you for the week you know which was like i i i i, I did and the, the, the boys on that team were, were amazing people they were amazing people some of them are coaches now and they're amazing so but i kind of very strange time so look uh, it's gas like you're you're, you're you're basically a kid getting off playing fighting this man who 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 was who was a New Yorker and then and then um and then you're going hanging with your mates in a band, you know, down the road who who have taken the bold step. What what age were you at that time? I was twenty. <clears throat> I was twenty. And I remember actually it's gas because the, the night before I flew out and I was petrified actually. The night before I flew out I actually fought a fella called Paddy Dormer who uh he'd actually fought Kenneth Egan I think in a, in an Irish final. But I fought, I fought Paddy Dormer in a pub in Paulstown, and and like when I got into the ring, <clears throat> my head was nearly at the ceiling of the of the uh, of the thing, and, and it was just a sea of farmers with cigarettes and Guinness. It was bizarre, you know. But it was uh, it was good times, you know. That's that's life. Yeah, it was that was really organised cockfighting, like in around the pub. Oh yeah, and I was the last man on, and and, and I was a dub, and uh, you know they don't like dubs down there, so it was fairly intimidating, you know. But uh, but in fairness, they. Uh, you know, I won, so they had to suck it up. You know. <laughs> you know, obviously, when you were when you were younger, then and you were, you know, up, you you went on to join the police force. But going over there and you know fighting with the NYPD, did that have an influence on you becoming a cop? No, no. I, I was actually I wanted to be a cop since I was ten, and I made a decision when I was around ten. I needed justice in my life. Uh, to put it simplistically, and I think that you know that vocation was 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 a magnetism with it. I just wanted to do that, you know. I needed to kind of right wrongs, if you know what I mean. I needed to kind of do something. I needed to be, you know, proactive um, with regard to my contribution. I needed to kind of do something. I was fascinated. I was fascinated by 
drugs. I was fascinated by murders, and not in a like. I mean, I'm, I'm actually quite a squeamish person, but but for some reason, you know, the notion of of doing the right thing was was an overwhelming, you know, uh, kind of factor for me. You know, I mean, I I, I was always into art. Always like I actually got a, a scholarship to to go to uh, a scholarship to Pine Valley Art Studios to do a portfolio preparation course to the NCAD. And, you know, meanwhile, back at the ranch, I'd made a decision when I was 10. And when I kind of do kind of lock on to something, it, it, it's very, very difficult for me to, to, to kind of interrupt that, you know. So, so, so I went up to Pine Valley and, and, and then I actually went around to the NCAD for this kind of open day before you submit your, your portfolio and your, you know, your application and all that stuff. And I walked in and these, these amazing artists were everywhere. And I, can, and I remember, I remember kind of looking at the works that they were doing and I just thought they were phenomenal. And I just felt that I, I wouldn't have been good enough for that, you know, and, and maybe it was a different world. And, 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 and I suppose I was still finding myself if, if the person I am now walked in, notwithstanding all the things I've done in life, uh, and, 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 you know, if, if the person I am now at this juncture in my life has taken a long time to get here, uh, I probably would, I probably would submit that application and that portfolio now, but not then. Not then, yeah. And, you know, obviously, you know, what age did you join the police force? Was it later in your 20s or earlier? Well, I kind of left school, uh, like, I mean, all I wanted to do, that's all I wanted to do. I mean, you, you are in a school in the city centre of Dublin and, all your mates and everyone in your class is from the flats. And you say, stupidly enough, you say when you're 12 or 13, I want, I want to be a cop. <laughs> it doesn't go down well, you know? Yeah, I, I, I was thinking that there because I was thinking, obviously, being in Tala alone, you know, you'd have a lot of, um, what's the word, kind of people looking at you like, you want to be a what? You want to be a cop, you know? So I'm sure that was, it, it's it's hard when you're young and you're thinking, what's wrong with that? I just want to do good things and everything. But you have people saying, well, you're going to be the enemy maybe, no? Yeah, well, I think everyone has a different experience. And, and, and to be honest with you, I'm, I'm definitely not saying that some people aren't justified in those opinions. I'm not. I'm definitely not saying that I agree with, with everything on both sides. I, I don't, you know, I'm very much a kind of a lone wolf and, and I very much do my own thing, you know, and um, and, and I can understand. I mean, I, I grew up on I grew up on the other side, like, you know, with all these fellas in the flats and we were running around town, you know, causing havoc and it was great crack. And and um, and I did lose a couple of mates when, when, I, when I committed to actually going. But I understood it, you know, I understood it. But but I have to say that I don't I, I don't believe I, I, I will never let a job define me no matter what it is, I'm my own person. And um, I, I kind of like to try anyway. It's not easy, but you, you like to try and live a, a good life and do the right thing. And, um, you know, I think that I've worked very hard on certain things. And I think that, um, you know, principally, uh, you know, from a moralistic point of view, I believe that certain decisions I've made over the years, I believe was the right decisions. And I've done the right thing. I think, you know, you'd always hear growing up, you know, people, you know, I, I know people who are guards and I've met people who are thugs and so on. And you, they always, obviously, there's a kind of an oil and water thing going on there. And, you know, you'd hear people saying, oh, he has a head, he's a head like a guard, you know. And now what's even funny is the joke that was going around during COVID where, where you know, people used to say, if you ask someone a question and they'd say, a guard wouldn't, if, if you said to somebody, 
where are you going? They'd say, a guard wouldn't ask me that. But then, obviously, during COVID, the guards were asking people, where are you going? So that kind of came around full circle. <laughs> well, you know, to be, to, to be honest with you, I, I actually, I don't like being known as a guard. I don't even like the word. I don't even like the word. I just like to kind of do, you know, good work and whatever else. And, and without getting into that side of things, I mean, <clears throat> I can appreciate every side. And, and and I'm quite I'm quite content <clears throat> to be on 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 uh, um, to understand and appreciate you know every side and um, I, I I see myself as just uh, just a man that that came from Dublin and, and grew up in the city and and lived in Tala and, and and I just have a job that's it and um and and to be honest with you like notwithstanding all that like I don't want that to ever influence you know uh, you know the life that you kind of try and pursue you know so so for me i'm just kieran and that's it yeah well i think that's important because you know i think whatever you want to be and wherever you want to do it you have to kind of go for it because there will be always people that say oh you shouldn't do that you know yourself being a musician there's people that say oh you still at the music and maybe you know you get a proper job and that kind of stuff well you know it's gas because i'm sorry to cut across you sorry but it's funny you should say that you touched on an amazing point like you know anytime i meet anyone like, you know, they say, any acting roles? And, 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 and they say, are you still with the band? And, and it's gas because, you know, you could be doing auditions every week. And, and the, the worst thing you can nearly do is nearly tell someone. Like, I mean, I, I was doing, I, I kind of get it. I, I'm a very passionate person. I'm very passionate. And, and like, like that, like when I started acting, I think people were going to look at me because I wasn't trained. And, and there were some things in certain circles, you know, with certain people and there was certain, you know, uh, I was probably made aware that I was that I was a, a non actor, as they called them, you know. But to be honest with you, I don't care about, about whether I'm a non actor or I'm, I'm not a non actor. For me, I'm I'm pursuing, uh, you know, conquering that craft and trying to improve that craft. I don't, I don't care what anyone thinks. Like I have to, I have to kind of pursue that. But it's gas because, like, I auditioned for Game of Thrones five times. And I stupidly told people, like when they asked me, I'm, I'm a very honest person in the sense that if someone says any auditions, I'll say, well, uh, you know, yeah, I suppose there is. And, uh, you know, and, and it was the longest, the longest two years ever, like when you're kind of constantly telling people, you know, you're waiting to hear. And, and, and it's gas because Game of Thrones were like, well, we, we have you penciled for this role. And, and, and then, and then and it's actually because my agent at the time, we were both laughing to each other, it, you know, we were because because the pencil went to a heavy pencil they were saying you're heavily pencils heavy and we were kind of going, just i mean do we fucking get it yes or no just tell us you know and, and, and it's a thing with acting like as in if you are in for a role you don't hear you know it's, it's very seldom you get feedback or you know like unless your agent is following up or something like basically the, the first you hear of it is you see something on social media like filming has commenced for a b and c and you kind of oh, well didn't get that so right yeah and the, the casting it's a hard game you know my my sister is an actress as well she was on the show a few months ago and she's had that life for years and years and and the thing is it's it's one of these industries where i always you know people see you on the screen but at that point in time you might have filmed that six months before or a year before and at that time then you mightn't be working you could be down in Gardner Street on the dole you know and people are like oh there's your man from that show and they're like what's he doing here but they don't realize that there's a lot of in and outs being an actor or a musician sometimes you have no money sometimes you have no jobs well uh, yeah you know I'm, 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 I'm always reluctant to accept that I'll never be rich 
become still I'm still I still haven't surrendered to that concept you know but but it's very true it's very true like I mean like and, and people deal in, in in the immediacy of the present in the sense that, like exactly as you're saying if they see something on TV like they think it's 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 very current and like you said like like the last the last couple of I think the last season of Vikings I did they, they had it held over for a really long time and um I had actually I think I started and finished Vikings across two seasons and I still hadn't seen myself on TV you know so so it was kind of mad in a way you know just how it fell but it enabled me to kind of in the meantime we were finishing the second album with Hail the Ghost and then and then I'd actually started working with Raga Ragnar's the, she's one of the actresses she's actually a, a double Olympian as well but from Vikings and she flew into Ireland <clears throat> we'd written a song kind of um online basically through WhatsApp and, 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 and Skype calls and um and uh, and and then she flew in and we recorded it here in Jam Studios with Martin Quinn, who is an amazing individual, amazing. He he's actually recorded all the music apart from Years Have Walt. Uh, he's recorded everything I've done with White McKenzie and Doris and Hail the Ghost, and he's actually he plays bass for Hail the Ghost live. He's an amazing fellow. So so we went down to his studio and we recorded that song, and then I flew out to Iceland and we shot a video out there. And then we came back, and then then Vikings was airing, and then then we released the album, and then we, we released that single myself and Ragged, and then and then actually everything was locked down then, so we just got everything in before, so we were looking. Yeah, and it's a great song. It's a lovely song. Oh, yeah, it's a great thanks. song, and the video is very intense and dramatic, and you know, ov- ov- yeah. obviously, you know, <laughs> the, the the two of you being big enough characters in. In Vikings as well, when the video comes out, people are thinking, "Is this a promo for Vikings?" Or you know, <laughs> well, it, it's gas because we were on the Black Sand Beach, which is on the it's on the south coast of the island, you know. And and and, and Raga was really like adamant. She's like, "Do not go near! Don't go near the, the waves." She said, "Like people lose their lives here all the time. It's like the, like you get dragged out." if you get hit by and, and it, it was ferocious looking and some of that kind of transmitted in the video but it was actually ferocious and um and there was a load of tourists there taking pictures and stuff like that and i'm sure we were there screaming our heads off getting filmed <laughs> i think they were all looking around going what the hell are those two lunatics doing over there you know but anyway <laughs> yeah that's great though that's great um i mean the the i'm going to come back to the act in a minute but i just want to go back a little bit because i know obviously when you were doing the boxing and you know you won some titles and you won the the world police and fire games so you were you trained with you know double olympian mick dowling as well so tell us about that experience about your training uh you know as a youngster with mick and other people you've trained with yeah i i i, I suppose i was inspired by you know the paul griffins the, the wayne mccullers the michael Carutes, prince nazim hamad all those mike tyson from i think i remember staying up in around 1988 uh, 1987, 88. I stayed up late one school night to watch Tyson. I think he was aired on the BBC Grandstand or something like that. And um, I did. I always had, I always had a, a love for boxing, but um, I, I think it was kind of, I, I kind of went into the sport out of necessity. Uh, I, I, like obviously, my interest flew up after the Olympics. I think the '92 Olympics or whatever it was, and um, uh, um. Uh, but like you're you're in, you're in a city center school, it can be rough enough, and um, you know, I, I kind of had to 
to kind of do something, I suppose. So I, I joined boxing just kind of just to defend myself, you know, and um, as well as having a love for it. So, so I actually first walked into Mick Dowland's club, Mount Talent, um, in in uh, when I was sixteen, which was kind of late, um, nineteen ninety six, and uh, he he he's an incredible man. He's 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 a uh, he 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 really pushes everyone to, to, to be the fittest they can be, you know, notwithstanding the technical aspect of boxing. Like, you know, he would drive you. I've seen him, like, heavyweights kind of crying even, you know, <laughs> trying to keep up and stuff like that. He, he, and, he, and he wouldn't have – this is all the stuff he did himself. Like, he said, as he said himself, he wasn't the most, you know, technical of boxers or skillful of boxers, but he was the fittest and he worked the hardest. And, like, he, he obviously got to two Olympic Games – he won two European bronze medals, and he was fearless. He's fearless. He's quite a small man. He, he's a fearless man, and um, and we had Mick Sutton, who was like the old, uh, it was like Mickey or Rocky. He he was he was the old um, trainer who was, who was a good bit older than Mick and just took no nonsense and said very little, you know. So so I actually had to get I had to get two buses, I had to get two buses down to down to the the club. You know, and uh, and and then when I couldn't afford the bus fare, I had to go around to my friend Peter's house, and and, and borrow his bike and cycle down, and uh, and and that was it. Like, and a lot of the times, I, I I think for say my junior search year or just after, I wasn't really allowed to box, and I used to say I was going around to Peter's to study because he was the academic, and I took his bike and go, so. You'd be coming up with some some different excuses when you'd be coming home with black eyes and stuff. So I blame Peter on a lot of stuff. <laughs> and and you at the same time, like obviously, um, you were a cross country runner as well. You were doing athletics, no? Did you start that at the same time or a bit later? I I, I was kind of pushed into that by default because uh, I actually had a, I, I was always injury prone, always injury prone. I remember I, I had a I think a back injury or a shoulder injury that I still have today actually. And I remember Mick saying, but are you doing your road work? Are you doing your road work for the boxing? And, I, and I'd say, yeah, of course, Mick, yeah. And he goes, great, great, you can come to my wife's running club. So so his wife, Emily Dowling, who won the, the Dublin City Marathon, I think, in 1984, she had her own running club called Sports World. So I was thrown into that. And I remember, like, they had me out, like, running uh, club meetings in, in Alsa and Santry and all these places. And I'd come out in a pair of, like, Washington Duke uh, basketball shorts or something like that, and, and, and a pair of runners, and, and you know, and they'd be throwing me into these things, and 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 uh, and, and I, I didn't really like running to be honest with you. The cross country was grueling. Now I mean grueling, but I remember we, they they said they were gonna when I was nineteen years of age. They said well, we're gonna we're gonna enter you in the Irish Championships. Now I didn't know at the time that it was the under twenty three Irish Championships, so I was only nineteen, and I remember driving down and Emily saying to me, "Look, you'll be grand once you don't get." you know, drawn in the lane against with James Nolan. And James Nolan at the time was an Irish runner and he was in the Olympian. He, he was in the Olympics, I think, and World Championships and stuff. Fabulous runner. So, of course, <clears throat> the first heat, I'm drawn against James Nolan. And I'm running, like, you know, two lanes away from him. And I see this very good-looking man, very supple, tanned, did all the, the you know, the, the, the professional running singlets. And, you know, he was so flexible and he was just, he was an amaze. You could tell this fellow was just never off the track. The ladies loves them and all this type of stuff. And I was sitting there going, oh, I don't even want to be here, you know. So anyway, <clears throat> I ran and it was a 400 meter race. And I was a, I was more of a long distance runner, to be honest with you. So I, I qualified for the final. 
of the Irish the Irish uh, under twenty three championships, and I qualified for the final as, as the fastest loser. Uh, around in 52 or 53 seconds so, so I, 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 wow. I was, and Emily came over she yeah. was delighted and, and Mick was there as well and they were saying like you have to qualify for the final and I was like oh Jesus Christ I have to do it again so so I mean so I remember so and at the time I remember my legs burning coming down the kind of home straight so I finished seventh which is still seventh in the country at 19 you know, so I remember we were in the warm down area afterwards and myself and James Nolan were, were running down and we were wa- war- warming down after the final. He had taken bronze and he, he, he was he was kind of, he wasn't essentially happy with the bronze medal. And, and he turned to me and he goes, he says, Jesus, it's, it's not even my race. And I said, not even your race, it's not even my fucking sport, you know, and and he was disgusted. He was, he was he was shocked. I had to explain to him. I says, "I'm not a runner. You know what I mean. I'm just uh, I do boxing for Mick." And he just thought I was bonkers. You know what I mean? Like uh, so, it was. It, there was a lot of a lot of happy memories. A lot of happy memories. You know. Yeah, that that's nice. I mean, that's funny because you know he was probably thinking, "Oh, geez, I didn't run so well today." Ah, but this guy didn't run as well as me. So that's a consolation. And you go, "I don't normally do this." Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I was only 19. You know. So, but yeah, I actually yeah. was thinking. That's myself, brilliant. You know, maybe, maybe I should have tried. Maybe I should have kept it up. Like you know, maybe I should have. But I was kind of always getting injuries, and then I took the boxing very seriously. Then and then getting more injuries, and then my I suppose my 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 professional career kind of came in and stuff like that. And then you're, then you're, then you 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 try and buy somewhere. You're paying a mortgage, and all the life life just kind of consumes you. you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and tell us, you know, obviously then when you when you were in the the police force, the guards, and you, you were boxing. Did, once you go into, like, say, the guards and you're a boxer already, are they kind of, like, straight away going, oh, you have to box for the guards? And, you know, are they kind of pushy about that? No, no, you can do what you want. Um, but to be honest with you, I, 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 um, I, I'll explain how that all came about, you see. Um, I, I was boxing for Mick since I was a teenager. And I, I, um, I, I was applying to get into the guards. So when I left school, I had someone else. I remember. I remember going in on the bus and asking somebody, uh, like you know, there was a CIO form you had to do, and it was like the deadline for the CIO form. And I remember thinking, well, I'm going to be a cop, so it doesn't matter. So I was passing it around, telling the lads to pick what they wanted for the crack, you know. And 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 someone put down applied biology, and and I actually got uh, accepted into the Institute of Technology Tala for applied biology. I I didn't even pick it. One of the lads on the bus picked it. Well, I was actually um. Uh, I went in uh, to to start my college, and I I didn't even read any of the, you know the I suppose the, the literature that came to explain the course breakdown or whatever else. And I remember there was like 120 people there, and, and you know this guy was showing us around day one. I shouldn't even be admitting this, but it was it's 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 kind of remarkably embarrassing at this stage. But looking back, but I was quite naive, and 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 and, and he was saying this is your chemistry lab, this is your. Uh, physics lab and I was thinking I'm not here to do that like, I'm, I'm applied biology and I did like biology and I put my hand up and said sorry sorry I, I actually think I'm in the wrong place and your man said sorry and I said I, I'm, I, I'm here to do applied biology and everybody looked around at me and I was like oh Jesus Christ what am I after saying and, and your man said well, <laughs> well if you had a read your your course breakdown you'd realise that you do all these subjects for the first year before you specialise and I went <laughs> <laughs> All right. <laughs> so that was my introduction. Now, and, and then to be honest with you, and that's a bit like you know saying joining the ESB, and you're like, oh, the only thing I'm afraid of, lads, is electricity. And they're like, you're in the wrong place. 
Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. But you see, the thing is, is that I was still chipping away, trying anything I could. And, and there was a neighbor of mine who worked at the Department of Justice and she knew I was just like fanatical about the job I wanted to do. And she said, look, you know, I have, I have, I have a, an opportunity for you to do six months work, six months temporary work in uh, the special detective unit. And as soon as I heard that special detective unit, I didn't give a shit. I left college straight away. I walked out of college after three months and, and, I, and I took the job. That was only going to be a job for six months. Right, and right. So basically, I, I had a neighbor who, who worked in the Department of Justice and she said, like, I've, I've this job for you. It's a temporary job, six months in the special detective unit. Uh, this was around the same time that there was applications for the NCAD and I was looking, whatever. Anyway, besides all that, so I actually left and, and I, I left college and I said, I'll take the job. But it was only six months and it was like pittance. It was like the the lowest money you could get. And um, and uh, uh, I, I took that. So so I, I was working in, in, in Harcourt Square in the Special Detective Unit as a clerk from the age of 18, literally a couple of months after I left school. So I went from school, essentially straight into the special detective unit to work as a clerk. And I mean, you know, the fellas in there, I think, they, you know, I, I had a real heavy Dublin accent then. I was a pup, I was only 18. So it took me a long time to gain their trust, you know. But um, but it was actually from that point I, I heard that, you know, I, I kept applying, applying, applying to, to try and go down and start this job. And, and I kind of got wind that I, I was going to be accepted. And I remember ringing the fellow who was over the Garda Boxing Club. And I said, look, I, I box for Mick Dowling, um, up in Mount Talent. And, um, you know, I'd love to to be a part of the Garda Boxing Club. And I still hate that word, the G word. Anyway, so uh, he, he said, he said, all right, okay. He says, well, what's your name? And Yeah, and, and what weight do you box at? All right. He says, I'll ring you back. Now, uh, I was still a clerk at this stage. He rang me back about half an hour later. And he says, can you go to New York next week? And I was like, "What?" So yeah, yeah, yeah. So 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 I, I, that that's how it happened. That's how it all started. So I met these boys before I even got in the door, and and because because I was accepted and I was working as a clerk, I fell in. The, I fell in the. Um, it was acceptable that I, that I was on the team, you know, and uh, I remember coming back, and uh, I remember drinking on the plane that time. I had a medal around my neck, and uh, the a tracksuit whatever else and i remember drinking johnny walker all the way home and vodka and everything else and this was like i mean i was a kid and i i, I was never I, I was never really into drinking and i remember the air hosts the air hostess telling like telling us like you know you got you got you to rein it in lads or you'll be in trouble like you know and i remember I, I arrived i arrived i could barely stand when i could barely stand when i came out into into the arrivals and, and my mother actually had to hold my head out the window uh uh going across the M50 heading home. I was in bed for three days afterwards. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and they're the, that, that's the, that's the, they're the uncensored stories. Yeah, right? but, and so it began. <laughs> and so it began, yeah. So it began. Well, I mean, I, I think with any job, you know, and any kind of industry, when you have another skill as well, it can help you get in the door. So, I mean, for sure, I, I think that, it's like footballers for years in Ireland have gotten good jobs because of, you know, being stars or being a, an asset to a club or something. So I think for sure, yeah, that, you know, when, when you were going for the guards, that they were thinking, OK, well, this guy's a good boxer, too. So it did help you, I'm sure. Yeah. Well, I don't know. I mean, I, I, th- I think you still have to do the 
you know, the exam and, and you still have to do the interviews and stuff. So I don't know. I mean, I think, I don't know how much it helped me. Like, you know, uh, a pup from Tala grew up in the city, you know. I was going to say to you there, obviously, you know, without getting into a lot of detail, but when, when you're when your work as a detective then, and, you know, that obviously led to working in Love, Hate and stuff like this. But was it, was that at that point when you, you know, when you're working as a, as a police officer and you're an actor or a musician and those worlds don't usually collide, you know, you don't usually see musicians who are guards or guards who are musicians or you don't usually see actors, you know, maybe they leave it or whatever. So was there, was that hard to combine both of those worlds? All I can say to you is, is that they certainly don't collide. They certainly don't really coagulate. That's all I can say to you. And and uh, but 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 I will say is that you know there's a lot of great people and I've got a lot of great support. And um and to be honest with you, look, I think individualism and self-expression it should be promoted. I think you know I think I think that if someone wants to dye their hair blue and and put a put a ring in their lip, you know, fair play. I think I think I think individualism is 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 it it promotes life i think we're, we're i think i think the way society is gone i think we're, we're 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 becoming a stagnant kind of uh you know production line where where people are wearing the same clothes and saying the same things and i think i think i think that irrespective of you know i mean a job is a job i mean like i worked in five supermarkets i sold a newspaper at the tala echo it doesn't matter what you do, and and the more the more people I learn, I mean, no, I don't, I don't, I don't have any right to think that I'm any better than anyone at anything. I mean, I mean, to be honest with you, I've met, I've met, I've met homeless people who, who are unbelievably talented at something, and and you know, and and, and to be honest with you, I think that everyone has a talent, and everyone is is, is a everyone is is a is a supreme human being in some respect, some form or other, and there's a facet of you know everyone that 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 is admirable and, and, and inspiring, and I think to be honest with you, just no matter what job you have, it's a job. Uh, I I take my work very seriously, no matter what it is. I, I, I like no matter what I'm doing, I take it very seriously. I I want to do a good job because I'm very old school kind of purist. I'm very traditionalist in a way, in the sense that you're only as good as your name. You know, you're only as good as your word, and I think actions speak louder than words. So I think to be honest with you, no matter what you're doing, if you have the the if you have the the support of your peers, that's what man like you say a soldier on a battlefield. If if the if the fellow soldiers say that man is a legend and he'll do this, he will he will he'll have your back. He'll be beside you. That's what matters, you know. And I think that those bonds are. It doesn't matter what the hierarchy say. I think if you're doing the right thing for the right reason, I think that's all that matters. Here, here's a question for you, Kieran. You know, and obviously it's a kind of a sensitive question, not so much for you, but for for other people. Maybe sometimes is that when you look at the in America now with the scourge of fentanyl and stuff, and obviously you haven't been involved with the police in Ireland. Do you see that as something that's come here, or that that's something that we have to be very wary of? I think anything that's harmful, I think, needs to be. Um, Anything that's harmful needs to be managed. I think, to be honest with you, I think I think we need to try and keep each other safe, no matter what it is. Um, 
I, I tend to not watch. I, I, to be honest with you, I don't watch the news. I don't. I don't watch the news at all. I, I, don't, I don't watch very very little te- television because it's fundamentally negative. And to be honest with you, I think that there's day to day it can be a struggle trying to be happy in yourself without watching the television full of full of negative negative news and stuff like that. So so I kind of I kind of try and confine myself to a very insular bubble, and and I try and just kind of you know be at peace with myself and and uh um but i'm very i'm very bad like i'm very bad at at kind of knowing what's going on around and stuff like that i deliberately do that because essentially if it's positive it will find you but i i I deliberately screen myself from a lot of negativity because i find it very kind of uh stays with you you know yeah so so tell us then obviously your first foray into acting you know the is 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 that story true that you were filming a music video and you went up to the casting director. Is, is that whole story true? Yeah, yeah, it's true. We were filming a, a music video for a song called Heat Seeker when I was with the band White McKenzie. And we were in, doing it was in the factory uh, on Barrow Street. And that, that was like the, the nucleus for the screen actors in Ireland. And uh, But it was also, uh, it was used as rehearsal space. I think, I think Bowie. REM, Bob Dylan, I think they're all rehearsing there and stuff like that. But anyway, so um, a lot of the actors, that's where their, their, the factory, as it was known as, uh, operated from. And, and we, it was a kind of communal area, a big blue table, and we were sitting down, you know, it was a day out for us with the band. And Maureen Hughes, the love-hate casting agent, was there. And she's a, she's a, a very inspiring character, and she's a great woman. And um, Claire McGinley, her assistant, was sitting there, and and, and I just chanced my arm and said, "We had a bit of, bit of a laugh, you know." And I said, "Would you let me read for, for one of the parts?" So I read for the dentist, and and I read for the character Kieran Madden. Maybe I just connected with that character, you know. <laughs> they gave me the part, you know. I had no background, as you can see from my teeth, I had no background in dentistry. Did, did you did you did you hide the fact? That you, did you hide that fact? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I did a course because <laughs> I, I did a course. I, 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 to be honest with you, before Lofay, I, I didn't want anyone knowing I was a cop. Yeah. So, so, uh, uh, but yeah, it's out of the bag now. Was that hard then to play like what you know to play a character that you actually do in real life? Was that very hard to do? Did you have kind of a battle in your um, in your own like head about that? Well, I did because I mean, you know, you, you could be. Uh, talking to someone that's not there you know like you know you you could be like so so it's a, it's a very different world to, to, for me you know i mean you've got all these actors and, and and actors have come to realize and they can be very insecure but they can be extremely confident as well you know and you don't know which is which at times because they're actors but um so so to be honest with you i didn't know what i was doing but i didn't really I didn't really understand the magnitude of the show until afterwards. Like you know, I thought oh, this is grand, this is a bit of crack. Yeah, and but I, I, I did like the, the, I did like the kind of challenge of it, and 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 but I had to just convince myself everything was real. I had to convince myself that Nage, you know, was a dirtbag and a really bad person, and and, and 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 that he was doing these things and these things were real. That's because I thought if if it's real, then you're not acting. And 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 apparently, if all these things like the camera will see if you're lying, you know. It's it's the best lie detector in the world, you know, and and I'm still battling with that. I'm still trying to to kind of navigate my way through the craft, you know, and it's gas because then then I so, but I I love the idea of playing something that's like I was lucky. I was really 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 fortunate to, to land that role, and I was blessed and, and fair play to to Stuart Carolyn, who 
who essentially was the showrunner and the writer and creator and events. He was like, he had his hands in all the pies there and he's, 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 he's an absolute force of nature. Maureen Hughes and Claire McKinney, they, you know, they all gave me a shot, you know. Actually, here, here's a funny story. This is how little I knew about the acting world and I still do. I was standing outside Maureen Hughes' office and inside was David Caffrey, the director, who's worked on Line of Duty and he's worked on, uh, what you call that thing, Peaky Blinders. And he, he, he's a great guy. Everyone loves Caffo, you know, Life and Soul of the Party. And they were all in there with the producer, Steve Matthews, and I was getting called back. So I'm standing outside the room, and little did I know that literally rubbing shoulders with me was a fella called Tim Roth from Reservoir Dogs. Oh, okay, okay, yeah. Yeah, so so, so now I, I didn't know who he was. So I'm standing there, and and, and they, uh, so they, I get called in. I'm, you know, kind of nervous, like, you know, <laughs> it's a different type of nerve. Um, so I got called in and, and they sat down and were kind of composed. And as an icebreaker, Maureen said, we, we, we were going to ask Tim Roth, would you come in and read with you? And I went, all right. I went, all right. And they, they were all looking around and they said, well, do, do, do you know who Tim Roth is? And I went, oh, well, I'd say if I Googled him, I do. I didn't know who he was. And I didn't know I'd been standing beside him for 15 minutes. <laughs> he was doing a, a kind of a Q&A there right. at the time. And they just went, oh, well, we'll just we'll, we'll move on. <laughs> you know, it was lost on me, you know. You know, so, so I mean, and, and there's, been, there's been a lot of them stories, to be honest with you. Like, you know, I'd go over to Bow Street and we'd be doing acting classes and in, in, like improv classes and stuff like that. And, like there was Shauna Kerslake, Lydia McGuinness, Rory, uh, Rory Heading. All these people were in, were in, were in, in, in my, uh, the improv kind of group that we had. And, and they'd be talking about things like, you know, actors, they, they feed on the latest film, they feed on the performances and everything else. And I would literally be, I wouldn't have a clue what they're on about, who they were talking about. And they, and they, and they came to kind of realise that and they'd be always laughing, like, you know, they were, you know, he wouldn't have a clue, you know, who, whoever is, you know. So uh, I've stopped kind of trying, but I'm slowly, I'm slowly kind of getting to, to, to research certain actors that I really like and, and trying to understand their work and, and what they did, you know, choices they made. Yeah, and I mean, that's the thing. There's so many actors out there, actors and actresses and some great actors. And But, you know, sometimes people are really heavily involved in the day-to-day of acting and they know everybody, but then other people just come, do the gig, go home, try not to be in that world as much. So there's both sides that can exist, no? Yeah, I don't I, I don't think there's any kind of rules for life, really. And I've, I've, I've stopped kind of trying to kind of confine myself or categorize myself in or compartmentalize things. And I just kind of go, whatever, you know, I just kind of float through the place trying to do a few bits. And um, I think I think as long as you're working hard and working honestly, it doesn't, none of that stuff matters, you know, who's who, who got what, who cares? So you did Love Hate. How many episodes were you in in Love Hate? I was in uh, 11 episodes across two seasons. So when that finished, did you find yourself thinking, okay, I want to do more of this? Or did you join the Bow Street Academy? Or what Like, what was the next step then for you? Did they, Or did someone come up and say, oh, we have another role for you? Well, well, to be honest with you, as soon as I started Love Hate, like literally as soon as I started, I said, this is what I want. And, and I felt, and naively so, I said to myself, right, I'll just go to America now. And, and just work here and I'll just, you know, get these big films. I'll get these big TV shows. <laughs> and like there was more tumbleweed than I've ever heard or seen in my life. So you kind of go, I was thinking, what the hell is going on here? <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. This isn't part of the plan. Um, so then I had to kind of, I met Maureen for lunch and said, Maureen, I want to act. What, 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 what do we do? You know? 
So I did go to Bow Street, and I remember myself and Barry Keoghan walking down the uh, the corridor one day, and he said, "You know, we're going to do some scenes. We're going to do some scenes tonight. You know, keep the tools sharp. You know." And I was like, "Yeah, yeah, yeah, great, great, great." I didn't care. Like, just get in and do it. Like, you know. And it was a remarkable place because, um, like Kathy Brady would come in and do do workshops, and 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 she's a fearless director. And uh, you, she, she, you know, you learn something from everyone. You, you had Chimmy Marcus, you had all these people. You had Frank Berry coming in to do talks, and all all, all these different different people. And, and you learn something from everyone, but you learn stuff, a lot of stuff for your peer, from your peers as well. Like you know, some great people in there, like Charlie Bailey and Terry O'Neill, and all these great people. And you learn from everyone, you know. So that's what I did, and then and actually, actually, the first role, the first. The, for, the first role I got afterwards was actually, it was actually two assistant directors from Love Hate, Dara Glynn uh, and Jared Duffy. And they were doing a short film called Little Bear and a Maureen called me in to kind of do an audition for it. So once again, Maureen gave me another break, you know, and, and, and I did that. And that was, that was a very worthwhile, you know, thing to do, you know. And that's that's kind of where it kind of really started because I was very very anxious to do something after Love Hate. I was kind of going, look, Love Hate is amazing. It's the biggest thing in the country, but I need to kind of prove myself as something, you know, as a proper actor, you know, as as a person who can, who has who has some degree of versatility or some degree of understanding. I have to try and be an actor. One, it's like a bug, I think, for people as well. You know, once you start doing it and you're into it, you think, okay, I want more of this. But it's very sporadic, isn't it? Because even if you're really lucky and you know some people or you meet people and have a good network, it can still be very sporadic because, you know, the shoots don't always come up and maybe they're in another country. And, you know, you have to some people are going over to L.A. for the pitching season. And it's it's a hard job, no? Totally. Yeah, totally. And if you get the biggest gig in the world, you know, you know, it could last eight or 12 weeks and then you're unemployed again. You know, so and it, it, you know it, it's 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 important to stay going i think they say that great actors or good actors you know they don't retire or they don't get sacked or they just they just decide to stop yeah you know and, and i think that <clears throat> that's something i won't do i won't stop you know when you did that and then obviously uh, you know the how did the vikings role come about then was it you know was it through the same casting agencies or you know how did you kind of get your foot in the door uh, I was called for an audition. I was signed to Bow Street Talent Agency at the time under Claire McGinley, and at that actually at that time it was a very, it was a very, it was a very good time because I, I was up for I was up for a role with Sean Penn and Mel Gibson in The Professor and the Madman. I was also, you know, up for roles with Game of Thrones. Uh, I was up for another film, and then there was the Vikings thing. And, 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 and when Claire said to me, the Vikings role initially was just like a couple of lines one day. And I was thinking, oh, come on, I, I want more. I want something substantial. I want to be able to contribute. I don't want to go, you know, and have to turn up for like one day of work, say a couple of lines and leave. It's like, like you know, that's, I want to do more. I want to be involved. And, uh, and and anyway, as it happened, the part that I went for in The Professor and the Madman, I, I actually, I ended up getting a very, very small, smaller part that played Sean Penn's father. And then it was actually cut in the end. And um, uh, then Game of Thrones didn't work out, so the only the only thing I was left with was was Vikings. So I went to do this, you know, one day, a couple of lines, whatever else. And the director at the time was David Wellington, and and he, we just got on, and he and he actually, 
you know, he, he actually came at one stage. He interrupted the the filming and he said, you know, he said, you're a really good actor. And, and I was saying to myself, I, I didn't know what the hell I'd just done. And I was trying to t- search my head. as like, what did I just do so I can do it again? So I didn't know why he said that, you know, and part of me still doesn't. But uh, but so, so they kept bringing me back. So they kept bring, they, they brought me back around four or five times. And the last time they brought me back, I was back to stay as a proper cast member. So I'd kind of worked my way back and worked my way up. And, and, and thankfully, Michael Hurst, the writer, he 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 gave me this amazing um, role in the, in the sixth season against it'd be kind of like you know uh, against the, the, the lead leading lady uh catherine winnick who played laggerty so yeah in the white white hair at laggerty yeah yeah so so I, I was blessed once again blessed that they that they afforded me with that responsibility and it was a great opportunity for me to show another side you know with vikings you know because as it's filmed in ireland and canada and iceland probably in different places but is a lot of that um, location shooting down to grants and budgets and that kind of stuff? Because I, I was actually speaking to a Danish guy yesterday and I was saying, what's the reaction like in Denmark and Norway to Vikings, you know, and, and what's what's the reaction that it's not entirely filmed in the Nordic countries? It's filmed a lot in Ireland and Canada. And he said, well, you know, he said a, a lot of people like it. He said, well, of course. Yeah, they would probably prefer it to be in these countries, but you know, you don't know the way these grants or the way film shoots are funded. You know. Yeah, I think there's some incentives for people to uh, to come here to film. I think there are some tax breaks or something. I'm not really too sure of exactly what they are. I kind of don't really concern myself with that type of stuff because um, it uses up too much brain power. But but there are film studios. They're kind of mushrooming all over the place. There's like there's one down in Limerick. There's Ashford. There's um, Ashford Studios is where where Vikings is filmed. There's um there's one I think opening up in, in, in Clondalkin area. Like just loads of films. Up oh, Belfast, I think Belfast Netflix are kind of buying up Belfast as well, and all those studios up there. So, um, so so I think they're, they're, the incentive is obviously being realised by these people, and it's but it's good. It's good that they're here. It's good. It's good for Ireland. It's good for it's good for the economy. It's good for um. Like I mean, I know Game of Thrones are a perfect example of like their tours now around the, the, the Belfast area and surrounding areas up there of you know Game of Thrones kind of um, uh, you know tours for people to kind of see certain locations. Like that, that's only a positive thing, you know. It's, it's good revenue for the country, you know. Yeah, and you know, like my my wife and myself were big fans of Vikings, and we watched all the seasons and everything. And it was when Vikings came out, you know, and it kind of it kind of came out, I think it was around the time of Game of, Game of Thrones or, you know, and uh, of course, you know, the first thing people are thinking, oh, is, is this kind of trying to copy Game of Thrones? But then it developed its own identity and it became a bigger thing. And because I remember, obviously, you do compare you, just the production and everything. And uh, but it, I think Vikings turned into its own entity and it, it was an amazing show. Yeah, I think I think to be honest with you, Michael Horst was it was a. Was a was an amazing kind of sh- you know showrunner in the sense that he wrote every episode. I don't know how many episodes there was, maybe eighty or ninety episodes, and he wrote them all. And like that's phenomenal work. And I remember one time we were filming a scene, and 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 all the streets and all are you know these little kind of windy streets were there, and 
and people are they're all dressed in character and there's like there's livestock there's animals there's fellas with weapons and everything else and, and, and all of a sudden this little man appeared scurrying up this little 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 uh, uh, road in, in the Viking village and he was wearing a suit tying the, the grey scraggly hair and the spectacles and he, he was talking to the director and then he scurried off back down the the, the little kind of tavern road and, and in, I don't know where he disappeared and, and someone said to me that's Michael Hurst the writer I don't know where he came from you know and he just kind of but he was like always working away and um, but I think character is a huge thing and I think every, a lot of people fell in love with Ragnar and he was an extremely magnetic character and he was a huge uh, character outside the show like everyone kind of fell in love with him and he was a bit of a devil and and he was a bit mad, and he was a rogue, you know, and everyone loved him. He time for everyone, and uh, he was adored. And I think all that stuff, all that energy transmitted on screen, and he's an extremely attractive man, um, and I'm very comfortable to be able to say that, you know. Now, I would change <laughs> I would change my face for his face in the morning. Yeah. But, um, but uh, he, so I think that... He, Vikings, I mean, that's what it was, because, like, Lagatar is a very pretty woman, uh, uh, Ragnar is very beautiful. Bjorn is very statuesque and everything. And even the the your co singer, the the Ragnar Ragnar, she's a very beautiful woman as well. So I mean, they you it kind of I suppose they tried to get the characters to be very tall, uh, well statured first people. No, be good Danish kind of looking. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I think I think to be honest with you, and that's how I don't know somehow I fell through the net, you know, um, but uh, being like this stretched translucent giraffe from Ireland with grey hair, but 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 in fairness, like Raga is six foot two, um, she's yeah, she's a she's a very attractive woman, uh, Lagerta, yeah, she's I mean, you know, Catherine Winnick is 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 I think a year or two older than me, and she looks about ten years younger than me. She's amazing, and we had to train like we had to train for. An amazing martial artist too. Yeah, and and she's feisty in the sense that like uh, like we had to train for f- four weeks on our own, kind of to develop this 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 last fight sequence, which is about one hundred and thirty five moves. And um, I remember the first day that we were we were kind of trained separately. You know, um, we were kind of you trained separately to kind of to to learn the moves and on the fight sequence, and then we were put together. You know. Um, so we had we had our own stunt trainers, and then and then basically we were put together to to work a, a, as a kind of uh, the two of us. And, and and the first day, like the first day, like like she she doesn't pull any punches. Like the first day, she caught me in the mouth with a sword, you know. And but my my head shouldn't have been there, you know. So that's fine, and uh, I had no problem with that. And um, but she gives it a hundred hundred and ten percent. And I remember actually the time we were actually filming the scene, and we did a lot of work. Um, that it was the cold, wet mud of Ireland. One of those times, you know that that and and it was extremely inclement. It was, you know, it was the, the the cold like infests your bones and stays there, you know, and uh, it was it was tough. But but neither of us used our stunt doubles, and we did the whole thing over a couple of days ourselves, and it was grueling now, and and uh, we you know I refused. I wanted to do it mine because because I want to do it on my own because it said in in the script it said like this is like an exhausting grueling battle to the death type thing so I wanted to be exhausted I wanted it to be grueling and and and, and she she did the same and uh, she never she never took cut a corner you know 
and it was it was hard like we were we were we were fairly broken after it, to be honest with you. yeah and you know the strange thing about vikings was you know without spoiling it for anybody um when ragnar's exit from the show that's all i'll say but for, for his exit from the show um people kind of thought oh god where's it going to go now that's the end but it didn't end there. I mean, and, and Bjorn was a great character and Lagertha became a bigger character. And, and of course, Ivor the Boneless and he became a huge character. And, and um, it really, it, it didn't die like people thought it might. It really went somewhere different. Yeah, and I think, and I, and I didn't actually work with Travis, but I think Travis and his influence, I think he really influenced the likes of... Um, Ube and uh, Ivor the Boneless and and Bjorn and uh, uh, you know in 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 how they behaved as characters they all had little and Fitzerk and stuff like that they all had kind of character traits of that bit of madness that bit of you know uh, masculinity that bit of energy that, that and, and and I think they I think that's why it carried on because they all had strength and energy in 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 in, in their characters and I think Michael Hurst saw that and kind of wrote for them you know. Right. Yeah, that's great. And was the accent something that's very hard to get? Because I think obviously, um, you know, when I think back to the accent, I always think of Floki, you know, Floki, his accent stood out so much amongst everyone. And uh, but I think everybody did a great job of having similar accents. And, you know, as you said, you have Irish actors, Canadians, Australians, Danish, Ivor is Danish, isn't he? And so, I mean, Everybody matched their accents pretty well. Well, to be honest with you, I hadn't a clue what I was getting into, to be honest with you. And I remember uh, um, Jordan, who played Ube, I remember asking him, like, what the hell? Like, how, how, do these, how do these people speak, you know? And he, he was saying, it, like, the melody of it was like a tweety, 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 tweety. You know, this type of like a bird. And, and that, stayed in my, that stayed in my brain, actually. And then when you had Raga come across, she was like... She, she was she is Icelandic like you know what I mean so she she had a, a kind of an organic and, and actually uh, the, the man who played uh, King Harold um, Peter uh, he, 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 he's an incredible person a very very open very generous person and he was also great at kind of so so like we'd all sit around and, and you'd kind of absorb things from, from, from them as well you know and I think, to be honest with you, by the time season six came, I knew exactly what I was doing. I knew exactly how the character walked. I knew exactly how he spoke. I could have gone on forever with it then, but it did take me a little bit of time to get. You know, when you were preparing for the role in Dublin, probably, um, and rehearsing, uh, did you have to kind of get a dialogue coach or an accent coach for do- any of those scenes before you went over to film? Well, there was one meant to be there, but he never showed up, I don't think. I, I, I actually didn't get any... Uh, um, I didn't get any uh, dialogue coach or accent coach. I didn't get anyone on that, but that was fine. I didn't really care. I just wanted it to be right. And once I knew that it was, well, it was okay. I, I was fine with that. Like, you know, but um, I, I, I think I, I, I definitely, I definitely got there, but uh, maybe I should have had one at the start, but see, my role was so small at the start that it didn't really matter. It was kind of in and out thing, um, but it, the role developed and became a big thing. So, um, <clears throat> but at that stage I had the accent. I had the accent at that stage and I, and I was very confident in, in the role. I was very confident with the character and I was very confident that, and I start. I, the more I researched, I researched like <clears throat> a lot of, a lot of Viking history and, 
and I came across the berserkers and stuff, like these wild, um, you know, these wild animals of men that were just. And, and to be honest with you, but there was a, there's a lot of a lot of credit has to go to the costume, but also the the, the hair and makeup, and that was done under Tom McInerney. Now Tom McInerney was the man who made white hair become this you know, ferocious beast with the scarring and, 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 and the, the dead eye and stuff like that with the trauma lens. So like, you know, my part was only, is only, it's, it's only a small part of it in a way or a part of it, a portion of it, because like, you know, when you're dressed like that, when your hair is, is knotted and reefed and in its design and you've got the scarring and the big beard, like that was my beard. I, I wanted everything to be as natural as it could be and as real as it could be. So it was fairly disgusting as well. Like my, my mustache was kind of going, like from from my nose right up in and inside my mouth it was like terrible like but i didn't care i wanted it to be real and i wanted it to be dirty and raw and and, and uh so i didn't have to act if you know yeah and you know how does it work um because obviously they're filmed in different places do they have a certain group of actors that only film in Canada or certain scenes? Or would they say to you, for example, oh, this scene with white hair has to be in Canada? How did that kind of process work? Well, well, <clears throat> there, was, there was part of the, the television show was filmed in Morocco. <clears throat> and I was kind of trying to push that white hair would, because would, Bjorn was going to Morocco at the time. And I, I, did, I did present the notion, I think white hair should go too. But no, I wasn't a runner, you know. I mean, it was certain things like, you know, if when we were when we were in Catechet, they would, we were in Catechet, that was in Ireland because it was up in Wicklow um, at the big lake. So Catechet is Catechet. You can't really kind of manipulate that. But like Floki went off to Iceland. So he literally went off to Iceland. And and um, and Morocco, that storyline went to, to, to Morocco and stuff like that. So so it just wasn't part it just wasn't part of, of, of say the white hair storyline that he would go to these places. So I was very much uh, <clears throat> at the centre of Cadigan. And I was uh, with Ivor the Bonus at the time, you know. Okay, okay. And were were all of Rolo's Rolo's scenes in France, was that filmed in Ireland? Having a clue, wasn't there? Okay, yeah, that was a bit earlier, I think, yeah. So, yeah. It, it's yeah. I don't, I don't know where that was. Filmed. I presumed it was Ireland. I haven't a clue, actually. Like it, 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 you know, that's one. That's one of the funny things about the acting. Like you know, sometimes the scenes when they're all kind of put together on an assembly line. Like you know, there's the presumption that we were all there. That it's gas. Like there was a friend of mine doing. Yeah, there was a friend of mine. He was doing a film with Sienna Miller, and and I said, "Well, what was she like?" And he goes, "She was an X on the wall." <laughs> you know, you know, yeah. She she wasn't in the scene with him. Like you know, really. That, you know, he yeah. was just. He was interacting. Yeah, because you, you do hear of that now more, you know, in the music industry, you know, when two big stars get together, Bono and Beyonce, or, and they say, oh, what was it like recording that? And they go, well, I did it in Miami and she did it in Florida or whatever, or different parts of the world. And they're like, we never met up. <laughs> and you're like, really? In the video, it looks like you're together. Well, well, well it's, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I think that's my only experience of that was that actually to start the lockdown, I'm kind of part of another band as well called Ears Have Walls, which is David Walsh. It's his 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 project. His and and he decided he wanted to do uh, a song with all the lads from Empire Circus and a couple of other musicians. And um, there was Laura that was in Ears Have Walls and myself. And 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 he wanted to do uh, Life on Mars by David Bowie. I mean, he couldn't have picked a more ambitious song. And, and and he played the piano for it. And, and and basically he put he put this kind of montage of us together and it's on YouTube, but uh, it was all done separately. 
because it was all done separately. So he and he put it together like you know, fellas in their bedrooms and stuff. So let, let's talk about the music. You know, um, so what like when did you start? Your did you start playing guitar at a young age, or what was your first instrument? No, I, 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 I basically um, there was a band that um, from Clondalkin called Doris. And they were mates of mine. We all used to work in Harry Ramsons. And it was the, the, the Brit indie scene was on with Embrace and the Verve and Ocean Cutter scene and all these things. And they were they were that type of crew, you know. And I used to kind of, um, I used to go drinking with them. And, they, you know, they were, I was fascinated by this notion of them being in a band. So I went in and they, they, they went to play in a place called Sorahans on, on Wexford Street, which I don't know, used to be called, I think it might have been called Carnival after it, but this was Sorahans at the time. And I went to see them play. And uh, shortly after that, I met them in the Belgard, which was a pub in Tala. And they were saying, oh, the drummer was leaving, you know, they didn't know a drummer. Now, I had a, a cast in my right arm, I had a broken hand at the time. And I said, but you're, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll be your drummer. And they said, do you have a drum kit? And I said, well, I'm actually buying one tomorrow. And have you ever played drums? I said, well, not really. So, I, so basically, I went out the next day, bought a drum kit specifically just to be in this band and uh and i turned up in in, in sound lease in ballymount with a drum kit that i didn't even know how to assemble and i had a, a cast on my hand it sounds ridiculous i know it's absolutely rid- ridiculous and and so uh we started rehearsing and i could literally use one foot and one hand that was it uh it's nothing much has changed <laughs> friends are very fr- friends are very forgiving well, they said actually they said to me at the time they were saying, "Look, look, you know, ability wise, you know, you mightn't be up there, but like, but your sound, yeah, <laughs> that's all that matters, you know, yeah, it's all that matters." So I, I had to literally, and then we went very, very, we we trained, we or trained, we rehearsed an awful lot, and all of a sudden, then we were playing headline shows in Wheelands, and uh, we were, you know, we were doing. Battle of the Bands and stuff. Lisa Hannigan was there, and there was a lot of bands. It was a good, good, good scene at the time in Dublin, and it was sent. Wheelands was central to it, like you know. And we were playing, we were playing very regularly in in Wheelands as a headline show. So, so I kind of had to learn very, very fast, you know. And we released singles and played the village, and yeah, it was great. Wow, and and so from that, you know, did you stay on the drums or did you dabble in the other instruments? Oh. Yeah, sorry. After that, then basically, uh, uh, I, 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 my daughter was going to be born in two thousand and seven, and I actually said to myself, you know, it's just too much. Everything is too much. I'm doing too much. Nothing has changed there either. But I'm at the time. I said I'm doing too much. I'm going to have to leave the band. And uh, we were kind of stagnated at the time. We hadn't. We 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 were kind of faffing about trying to assemble this debut album and it didn't happen and blah blah so i left the band and i'm still great mates with the lads and they were you know but i left the band for the right reason because i was gonna have a child so my daughter was born in october of 2007 and within six months i was saying i'm gonna start my own band and and and, and i rang my best mate peter fitzpatrick and said i said give me Eamon young's number and he goes what do you want it for and i said i'm thinking about you know, starting a band. And he said, I'm not giving you his number because Eamon will plague you. He won't leave you alone. And I said, that's exactly what I want. So within 24 hours, Eamon was in my house. It was just me and him here. We were up in the spare bedroom. I had assembled a massive pearl drum kit in, in the room. I knew how to assemble them then. And Eamon was sitting on the bed with a kind of shitty little fender. 
uh, cheap little thing. And he was looking at me and I was looking at him and he said, well, well, what are, you, what are we going to do? And I said, well, just fucking play something. And he goes, well, play what? I said, just play a chord. And then he played a chord and I said, well, not that one. He goes, play this one. So, oh, yeah, okay, they change the chord. And he goes, yeah, oh, that's perfect. And I, I'll, I'll put a beat there. So, we, you know, and we were kind of jamming to this two chord thing and I put a beat behind it, simplistic beat, obviously. And, and then we stopped and said, okay, well, who's going to sing? And he said, well, I'm not singing. I said, Jesus Christ. I was just so intent that I had to get this this band off screen. I said, well, I'll sing. So I had to so I had to try and make up something. And and then White McKenzie was basically born out of it because we said, we, we, we need to get Ian. I, I rang Peter and said, you're in a band. I don't want to be in a band. I said, you're in the band. And he resisted it. Now, he played a couple of shows with us, you know, and he recorded a couple of songs with us. You know, he played on wins, but he didn't even want to be in the band, but we made him be in the band, you know. And then Ian Corr, who was an amazing piano player, we were saying, do you think he'd want to be in the band? And we were like, nah, he probably wouldn't. And I rang him. And I don't know, maybe he had nothing going on or something, but he said, I'd love to be in the band. So so basically, he he lived up in Betty's Town. So we had to travel to Betty's Town every week to rehearse. And like we, I remember like driving home at all hours, trying to get up for work in the morning. And, oh, we were knackered. But um, but that's how White McKenzie started. And I remember Eamon, it was actually Eamon who taught me how to play guitar. Like, And it was, I mean, we, we always laugh about it to this date, you know, where he, he, he showed me an E minor. And, and and so he taught me how to play guitar. So I started writing songs from what Eamon was teaching me. And like, I, I turn up sometimes and go, I think I have a song. And they're like, what do you mean you think you have a song? And I was like, well, is this a chord? And they were like, well, not really. You know, but can we use it anyway? Yeah, grand, whatever. You know, and we were just, and, and he goes, I've never seen that. Whatever. I, I would just put my fingers anywhere where I could. And they were like, well, your guitar is in tune. So we were, they were trying to figure out, like them trying to intellectualize what I was doing. And I didn't even know what I was doing. So, and, and, and I'm not saying it was rocket science, it was kind of simple stuff, but that's how it started. So I became the singer and then I was trying to learn how to, so, so then White McKenzie was gone for a couple of years and then, and then we, you know, that kind of broke up and it was me aiming and aiming held the ghost. And I think now, I think now we know what we're at, we know our identity and we, we've been in the game long enough now, like I'm 16 years working with, or maybe 17 now, I don't know what it is with the COVID, but I've been 17 years going to Jam Studios working with Martin Quinn. He was an amazing, amazing man. And um, and I think we, we just, we have no time to think of how crap we are or how good we are. We just want to get on and make the next record. Where, where did the name Hail the Ghost come from? Was that from something specific? or? Um, I, I was thinking that uh, I kind of, I always felt that White McKenzie probably shouldn't have ended. And it was probably, maybe it was premature or maybe it was the right time or it was just like that we were all pulling in the different directions and we, we didn't really, we all, we didn't have this mutual cohesiveness uh, where we knew what the hell we were. And I just thought that anything we do thereafter is in res- full respect to White McKenzie. So it's nearly to respect the ghost of White McKenzie in a weird convoluted way. That's where my head was at. And I thought then maybe, maybe no one will hear this music. Maybe it'll only be appreciated in retrospect. So it was all that type of thing I was thinking of. And I just thought it was like, hail the ghost of, you know, that type of thing. So I said it to Ian at the time. I remember we were we were in a bar in, in, in Dublin and I said to Ian, look, you know, I want the band to be called Hail the Ghosts. And Ian was like, oh, Jesus Christ. He says, I, I, that's, that sounds like death metal, he says, you know. And I said, no, no, it's not. Like I said, it's 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 like like, you know. Red Hot Chili Peppers, like Super Furry Animals, like Radiohead. You know, you make your name. You know, you create the band behind the name. You know, so we had to really pull and drag it. You know, but we battered him into submission. You know, so a, a name can be something because 
some people don't get it, but another person has a vision and they're like, no, this name is going to work because a name can come from a book or a movie or some dream you had or something. And it can mean a lot to you and you put it forward and somebody else goes, that's shite. I, to- I, to- I totally agree with you. Like, you know, I mean, uh, like when I, when I, I, I named White McKenzie, it was because when we were younger, myself and my brother went to this place called Nakadoon uh, for, for um, I think it was Sunshine House, it was called. For, for kids that didn't have holidays. And and myself and my brother went down there and, and the, there was priests, I think. And they were um they were telling the stories and there was a ghost called Mackenzie. And he was carrying these chains and these lanterns at night, you know, and I, I remember I was kinda half terrified, half mystified by the whole thing. But that stayed with me. And I loved the notion of white, white album covers like the the color white it's so powerful in a sense like it's in a pure sense and i just put them together because it's like radio head things that don't go together so that's where i was going with that one you know yeah and and so let's talk a little obviously about the album arrhythmia and you recorded that um in the same studios and jam studios oh yeah we were we're residents down there we love it yeah jam studios yeah Yeah, that's down in in kells and that album you know did it take a long time to put together? Was it songs over a few years or did it come together very quickly? It was a tough album. It was a tough album to assemble. Uh, we had about, I'd say, we didn't think we did, but looking back on all bits of demos and bits of stuff we were, we had about 20 songs, 30 songs. And uh, we, we, we were kind of constantly sculpting the, the, the songs and the sound to so to because there was a because of the protracted period of time that we were working it the, the, it was quite dynamic in the sense of 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 songs so we had to kind of work to try and hold them in so that so that would have a cohesive feel like even the even the the track listing it was very specific for and we did it for vinyl uh we did it for i think i have it here actually we did it for vinyl it's coming up yeah so but we did it we we did it that that, that, that the last track on, on on the fourth side was mountain um I, I, everything was plotted specifically but mountain is like a final track but it's like the final track on the first album of that energy and then when you turn it over you're straight into black karma and that's kind of a bit heavy that was our kind of nearly cranberries-esque feel to it like you know and that was that was a song that Eamon wasn't actually sure would would work and then like there was other songs that that didn't make the album like there was there was plenty of songs that didn't make the album and then there were songs that like literally the last song that we put in it was Loveless where I don't know I didn't know whether I wanted that out on the album like you know because I suppose it was a kind of a heavy song and I didn't know whether whether to put it on or not, you know, and it was um, <clears throat> Eamon and Ian both said, yeah, no, it needs to go on. And um, I think the last song we recorded actually for it was was Elegy. And Elegy was actually written, uh, we started the notion of Elegy in 2015. Do you remember the, the Berkeley disaster? Yes, yes, yes. It was six, six, yeah, yeah, the Berkeley disaster. That's all you need to say, really. But anyway, we 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 arrived to rehearsals one night, and we rehearsed in, in Ian's parents' house. Actually, it's gas. I don't know how they've let us rehearse there for like a couple of years at this stage. I don't know how they don't hate us. 
Like, you know what I mean? And like, it's gas, like, you know, his niece would be over and the door would open or, or they have a new dog and the dog would burst in the door. Like, it's like, it's like, you know, it's like, get out, you know, there'd be mayhem and his mother's there. How are you, Mrs. Carr? How are you doing, Mrs. Carr? It's like the Reardons with rock music. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's like, I don't know how they've tolerated us, to be honest with you. I wouldn't tolerate us. But anyway, so um, we arrived to rehearsal one night and Ian was just very, very, hopeful as he might, I hope he doesn't mind me saying this, actually, but it's too late now, says you. Um, but he was very uh, affected by the Berkeley disaster, and he was he was um, uh, he was over there on a J one, uh, and he really you could really understand and empathise with 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 what, what what had happened and the gravity of it and everything else. And, and I remember at that night I'd never seen Ian, you know, that affected by something. And I said, "Look, you know," I said, "We we'll write a song." We'll write a song and as a tribute to those people, and, and we'll we'll put it on the album, and 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 you know it, it just it took so many different forms. Like that song "Elegy" was written I don't know how many times, and it like it started off with this like Rufus Wainwright esque type of piano piece. It was like a concerto piece, and it ended up you know taking some different, uh, taking on some different forms, and eventually it ended up with the with the version that we had. And I think we're we're all really really happy with that, you know. Brilliant, brilliant. That's really good. And so, obviously, you know, when when you're working as an actor and as a musician, if one of those gigs gives gets you more high profile or gets you noticed more, it has a benefit for the other thing. So, did you find that that once you did Vikings, it opened more doors for the music too? Yeah, I, I suppose you're right. Like everything helps everything. I think you know, and um, but like it's like. It's, it, I can't stop them. Like, I can't not do these things. It's in me, you know, in the sense that I'm not going to stop doing it. Um, but it's just, it's, it, it is, it's, it's, you know, one does benefit the other. If, and it can also go against you, you know, if you're shitting one, maybe that might affect something as well, you know. But I think, but I think essentially, like, once your standard of work is of a standard, I think, I think it can only be a positive thing. Um, we were, we were invited to, uh, to play the band to play in in a place in Denmark, um, but unfortunately the coronavirus hit and we 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 had to to not go. But we were going to travel with the full band to to Denmark and and actually what they had wanted to do is they'd want to assemble a couple of Vikings actors to to give a q and A. Q&A. So they were they were hoping to get a couple of the the principal cast. So there was I think four or five of us being lined up, and then they wanted a local band to play. And then they wanted Hail the Ghost to play. And then as part of that, they were going to ask me and Raga, would we sing Broken Wings? So it was a big ensemble of a, of a night. So that would have been a bit of fun. And we were meant to go to London and stuff as well uh, to play in a venue in London. I think that guy was a big Vikings fan as well. So yeah, it did help. Yeah. yeah. And actually, you know, just, just actually going back there, something I was thinking of asking you, but I forgot, is this like there's supposedly a spin-off of vikings no vikings valhalla or some other show coming out do you know anything about that you're well informed yeah uh there is yeah vikings <laughs> vikings valhalla valhalla is being shot at the moment i think they're just i think they're just closing off on season one it's written by jeb stewart i think he wrote die hard and stuff like that so he, he's the showrunner it's been ran from the same studios ashford studios um that's all i know okay but but it's very hard for the older cast members from one show to get into another because it's set in a different time, isn't it? 
Yeah. But I don't know. Maybe there might be one or two people. <laughs> I I don't I don't know, but I but but I think there there maybe there might be one or two characters reappearing. I don't know, but as different characters, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> You're laughing. You you know more than you say. Don't worry. <laughs> you know. We what I suppose what I'm really asking is there's no is there any slot for you or do you think you might appear in it? Uh, I don't. I don't think so. For me, I don't. I don't know about me. Um, I don't know about me. Uh, I, I, I'm there, there, there's, yeah. As I'm going off to work on one television show at the moment, so I mean, I'm happy. Um, and and I'm kind of in the running for one or two others actually. Would you believe at the moment? So, uh, so I, I I don't I don't know even if if that presented itself would it be viable? I don't know. But but to be honest with you, I think I think that if it's a thing, you have the luxury of choice. I think then it becomes then there's other things like you know your decision might be necessitated by character I think is character and story you know and and what what is what what is the is the character and story that might might kind of complement you and, and and the road you want to take and then if it's a thing where you can make choices I think then you're just you're a lucky person you know yeah and you know the thing about it is also for anybody who works in different jobs sometimes something comes up, but you're booked for something else and you can't do it. You know, my own sister had that. She would, she got, um, she got a call. She was in, in for some uh, show and they were filming and she got a call to be on the English who wants to be a millionaire. And she had to turn it down oh, wow. because she was doing the show. And, wow. she, and then I think what happened with the show, I don't know if it went ahead or whatever, but she always says, you know, the, the choices you make and the choices you take, Sometimes you kind of look back and go, Jesus, I could have been a millionaire, maybe. You know what I mean? Well, and, and you never know what works. You never know what works. So you kind of just have to go with what makes you happy, I think. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I mean, you don't know what you don't know what works, really. Like, you know, what I mean, like, no, it, we, we never know. And, and, you know, we you can take a path and not sure where it goes and it can lead to great things. But then you're like, oh, I should have gone. But I suppose the thing is, you can't have regrets. You just have to move on, don't you? I'm a firm believer in that, you know, and I'm trying, you know, I suppose, because none of us know how long we've left, you know, and I, I'm trying not to have regrets. And I'm also trying to kind of be, you know, I suppose, a credible role model for my kids where they kind of go, like, <clears throat> my son asked me once, <clears throat> excuse me, my son says, Dad, Dad, can I go to the Olympics? You know, and I said, not only, of course you can, I says, of course, but not only can you go to the Olympics, you can win a medal. You know, but like, so I, I think, you know, don't put limitations on yourself. Like, you know, it, it's hard. Like if, you, if you're trying to get out and do something that the hardest thing in the world to do is to push yourself, you know, and I think, I think it's all about one thing, which is just taking part. And once you take part, you don't know what's going to happen. Like, like, you know, and, and, and it's gas because now my mates, they, they, they like the shit out of me, you know, like, as in, they like, what are you doing this week? Skydiving, you know, like, as in, they just think I'm nuts because, I like I, I I'm writing as well. Like I, I've been I've been writing. Yeah, you're like the Irish Idris Elba, does everything. <laughs> yeah, without the without the fortune and the <laughs> and and the the success. Yeah, <laughs> I'm, I'm I'm like the kind of uh, the Oxfam version of, of it. Yeah, yeah. But uh, but the, but the thing is, is that uh, for now, but but I'm okay with that. I mean, like as in, like, I, like I'm actually I'm writing a book at the moment, and the chart is on the wall here. Uh, it's a huge big chart and I've the whole book mapped out and I've, I've started to put pen to paper 
and um that's the same my mates my mates just they just like they, you know your feet will never leave the ground with my mates you know they, they, it's it's i'm not laughing stock you know uh but but I, it's just something that i have to do you know i've, ri- I've actually written a lot of films as well uh, a lot of short films and i've written a feature film and stuff like that and, and some of them are gathering dust and might or might never be made but they're just something like once I get them out, then they're out, you know, then I can move on to the next thing. Well, you know, I mean, I, I think it's brilliant. And, you know, you, you've done so much already, you know, and you're you're not old or anything. So I think there's a lot more you can achieve. And uh, probably we will see more books and more music and more film and more TV and more everything. And you may one day you could be even the president of Ireland. Who knows? You're very ambitious, you know. I don't know about that. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. Although it's a nice gaff. I wouldn't mind having that house. Nice gaff. Yeah, yeah. So listen, Kieran, thanks very much. And um, I suppose the last question I have for you, you know, what kind of, what do you see yourself doing over the next year? Do you see yourself working a lot more with music or with, with acting or it's it's up in the air? I, I think that I think that I've, I think I have a lot of work to do in acting. I think I have a lot of work to do. There's, I'm not at the level I want to be at. I have, I have an expectation for myself, um, and 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 I want to get to that point where I want to leave something behind that, that's significant. So I'm not at that point. So I have a lot of work to do in the acting. With regards to the music, as soon as this the these restrictions lift, like I obviously, Henry Ghost are going to do a third album, and we're really looking forward to that. But I'm also back writing with Ragga. We're, we're doing another song. And then David Walsh's project, Ears Have Walls. David is extremely prolific and he's writing songs the whole time. And um, so I, I sang on five of the, the first seven releases. So I think I'm going back into the studio with him as well. But I, I'm determined to get this book finished. That's that's what I want to do. I want to get this book finished. I need to get that done. <laughs> Brilliant. Well, listen, Kieran, it's been a pleasure having you and uh, you've told us a lot and it's been great to look inside your world. And I told you too much, Simon. You told me too much. You see, that's that's my <laughs> skill. I get too much out of them and then they're like saying, what the hell did I say that for? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I said, oh, shit, can we delete all that and start oh, again? Yeah, delete the matter. whole it's thing. Great. It's great. But thanks very much. We really appreciate it and we'd love to have you on the show again in the future, you know. Um, when you have when you have a lot more work done. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, we'll wait till then. But yeah, I'd love to come back. And thanks a million. It was a pleasure talking to you. And thanks very much. Brilliant. Kieran O'Reilly, everybody. Thanks very much, Kieran. Thanks a million. Thank you very much, Kieran. That was a really interesting interview. And uh, we wish you the best of luck with everything you do in the future. And we hope that good roles and good things come your way. And it was a pleasure talking to you and very interesting chat. Okay, so moving on to next week's guest. Next week, we're going to be speaking to Mairead Nimwini from Altan. Uh, Mairead is a singer and a fiddle player with Altan, and she has been one of the key figures in the Irish music scene over the last 30 or 40 years. So we would like to, you know, talk to Mairead and find out her point of view about how the current music scene is. And, you know, obviously during COVID, it was harder and, you know, she tells us her views about everything and she talks about her experience and her career to date with Altan and with other projects and also she's a presenter on TV with the Pure Drop and on RT and TG4 so 
we look forward to that chat and it will be very interesting and we hope you join us as usual we hope you like the show so far we hope you've enjoyed today's episodes so until the next time i hope you look after yourself and your family my name is simon k this is the collective whisper podcast thank you very much stay tuned bye bye (music) 